this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziaf and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, this episode is an interview episode. That means we are graced with the presence of one Mr. Chip Midnight. Welcome back, Chip. How are you doing? I am. Uh, I'm doing well, and I'm happy to be back. It's been a little while. I've uh, I've fallen a little bit behind on my interviews, but uh, we'll, we're playing catch up. That's okay. You you stacked us with so many interviews at the beginning of the year. I feel like we probably overloaded people with so many episodes in the first half of the year that they're they're just now getting caught up. So we'll just start burying them again with more yes more interviews and more episodes. So this one this is a deep cut. This is a deep cut for sure. Can you share the the folks that you talked to for this one? Yeah, so I talked to Keith and Susie Alray, Al, Alray of the band Pogo. Uh, P-O-H-G-O-H. I think the first time I saw it, I was kind of like, what is that? What is, how do you pronounce this? But then uh, it's, it's Pogo. Um, I was familiar with them from their appearance on the uh, Emo Diaries Volume 1 mm-hmm. compilation that was put out by Deep Elm Records in 1997. They had the last song on that CD. Uh, but that was my familiarity with them at the time. Um, they just put out a brand new record last month. And so their name resurfaced in my inbox. And that's how we ended up setting up the interview. And they were active. I think they had one album in the 90s and then were apart, but then have gotten back together and actually released a number of albums over the last couple of years and some really other releases. Yeah, so we didn't we didn't spend a lot of time on the history of the band in the interview, but uh, I'll give the real quick history. They formed in '94 in um, I believe the Tampa, Florida area. Um, you know, you guys talk about the the mid '90s a lot. It was you know a little bit of probably pop punk, a little bit emo stuff going on in Florida at that time. Um, they formed in '94. They had a different singer named Kobe. Uh, they recorded. They, they formed a friendship with the band Braid, and they they released a split single with Braid. Um, Kobe left the band and they brought in a new singer from another local band named Susie. Um, again, they, they were, I think they put out a couple singles. Maybe they did a little bit of East coast touring, not a ton, but they toured some, a little bit with braid. Um, that was kind of like their, their, they toured with a, with a couple of different bands with braid seemed to be like the band that most people might recognize. Um, they had recorded a full length record and, uh, I think they mentioned a little bit in the interview, um, just getting ready to sign a deal with Deep Elm and essentially like on the verge of signing the deal. I don't remember if this is exactly what happened, but almost like they were going to get on the plane and, and Keith, the drummer, um, decided to quit the band. And so when he quit the band, that kind of obviously put the band on, on ice. They decided not to go forward. They ended up putting out that record. Um, it's called In Memory of Bab. Uh, they did put that out sort of after the fact. Um, but yeah, they they I think they played maybe a couple shows to support the release of the record, but but they broke up before anybody really knew who they were. Um, fast forward a couple of years, Keith and Susie ended up getting married. They were not dating, as far as I know. While they were in the band together, they ended up getting married. And Tim, as you mentioned, they uh, you know as as people who break up tend to do, um, 
break up both in personal relationships but also bands. I think they they decided to get the band back together at some point. Um, they've recorded a couple of records. They've worked with Jay Robbins. They opened not too long ago. Uh, they did a short run of dates with Jawbreaker. So uh, they're getting sort of, I would say their second win, but it's almost like their first win that never happened. So they're getting mm. kind of this resurgence. Um, we don't talk about it a lot in the interview, but Susie um, does have MS, multiple sclerosis. And so that has, uh, you know, uh, it's a little bit difficult to do some touring and to do um, in, between multiple sclerosis and, and you know, we're all of the same age. Getting on the road is not something that they're necessarily going to be doing a whole lot of. Uh, they do plan to play a couple shows here and there um, when the when the, when the situation is right, and they'll, they'll play shows in Florida and stuff like that. But uh, I would not expect to see them on a coast to coast tour gotcha. anytime soon or ever again. But uh, but you know the music. You know, like I said, they were on the emo diaries. Um, it, we spend the first five or 10 minutes in the interview talking about the word emo and whether or not they, they belonged in that category. I think a good argument could be made that they're not really an emo band. Uh, they, they came about during a time when bands like Velocity Girl and Super Chunk were, were, were big and, and influential, influential to Pogo. You can hear that a lot in their music. Again, I don't know what you'd call that. Um, it's not really pop punk. It's pop emo it's i don't, I don't know what you call that music but uh <laughs> mm-hmm. but but they're definitely more velocity girl super chunk ish than they are like what you think of as true emo music right? gotcha and you can find them at bandcamp uh as you mentioned p-o-h-g-o-h.bandcamp.com and they're on the the socials like facebook and instagram and the one that shall not be named because of the things <laughs> happening the meltdown <laughs> happening uh but Thanks, Chip. Let's yeah. uh, let's get to your interview with the members of Pogo. I am here with two of the members of Pogo. How are you doing tonight? Excellent. Awesome. How are you doing? I'm great. So (laughs) my introduction to the band was via the CD, the Emo Diaries one. Um, My daughters would make fun of me and say it's such a dad thing, but I'm wearing my triple fast action shirt. Awesome. We're on the Emo Diaries, and that's that's why I have the CD, is because I was a huge, still am to this day, a huge triple fast action fan. That's awesome. Uh, Jimmy World fan. And so this was a really cool intro to a lot of bands. For sure. For me, a lot of bands that I was not familiar with in, in that time period. So let's just jump in right with that. And how did you end up on that compilation CD? And so for those listeners who <clears throat> don't know what I'm talking about, it's the What's Mine Is Yours Emo Diaries that was put out by, I totally know this, Deep Elm Record. Yeah, 1997. Yeah. So how did you end up on that? Do you want me to do this, Susan? Yeah, I'll let you do Okay, so um, when we were late 96, we were recording um, our one and only full length at the time, In Memory of Bab, which would eventually come out in 1997, uh, posthumously after we broke up. 
<clears throat> John from Deep Elm Records had discovered us somehow. I'll be really honest with you. I don't know how. Maybe through one of our seven inches or something. And um, he had offered to uh, put out our album. So um, we were on the verge of signing a three album deal with DL Deep Elm at the time. Uh, we would have been Deep Elm's second band after Camber. I don't know if you remember Camber or not. Yeah. So, um, so that was kind of exciting, right? And so that just kind of morphed into, hey, I've got this comp idea. It's going to have Jimmy World, Sam I Am. I don't even think he got any further than that. And we were like, well, of course, we we'll, would love to be on that compilation. Yeah. And so we gave him a song, uh, the song Frindex, uh, which ended up on that comp. Uh, I won't go into the details of what happened. The, the, the band kind of fizzled um, and, and ended up uh, splitting. Um, so the Deep Elm thing never came to fruition other than the song on the Deep Elm, uh, on the Emo Diaries uh, compilation. Yeah, and so and it's the last song on the CD, which yeah. I don't know how if you had any thought into that at the time that it was on, but no, in in some ways, maybe I'm wrong. First song and last song might be some of the better slots because if you kind of get caught in the middle, people might be boarding through, but then they get to that sure. last song like, oh, this is the end of the CD, so I'll make it through. And um, <laughs> I'm sure that I listened to it all the way through, but I do remember your song and the Jimmy World song. I think is the first one, and so sort of a good book into that. That, uh, for sure i mean i we weren't asked what slow we were just oh cool we got the cds in the mail and we're like oh we're the last song yeah you know yeah. and it's a it's a big song Susie wrote it i mean it's um it's a powerful song i believe we still play it yeah. and um i don't know i mean i think it's a good album you know it has that fade out and then it comes back it's like a teaser so that it, that fits well as far as it being the end you know what i mean yeah, yeah. So, i don't know Susie, what do you think um, I agree. I think that it, I mean, here we are, what, 2019, we went to Japan. And the main reason we got there, I think, is because we were on that comp. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people there to see us who had, wanted, had wanted, wanted to see us play, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And right. um, it was just a really cool full circle moment. Right. But um, And of course, they all wanted to hear Friend X. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a really cool comp to be on. I think June was on it too. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Lazy Kane. Lazy Kane. Yeah. So, um, you know, what Keith, let me back up a little bit. I and mean, he said the band fizzled out. He quit. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, whatever, it all happened the way it was meant to happen. Um, but yeah, so. I don't know what else what I want what I want to say about the comp. I think I think that we covered it. Yeah. So, but I do have a question. You said when when you went to Japan, they wanted to hear Friend X, and I mm -hmm. I interviewed a singer from a band called We Were Promised Jeff Pax recently. Yep. And their big song is um, Quiet Little Quiet Little Voices. Okay. And they're not they haven't been around forever, but that song he wrote twelve years ago, and he said. How would he have ever believed when he wrote that song 12 years ago that that would be the song that people call out for? So when you go to Japan and people are, are asking you to play that song, were you sort of like, we've written so many songs since then. Why do you want to hear one of the first songs? No. No. Not at all. I mean, we were very fortunate to go. We were excited to go. And we knew that we had a long history there, that our, that our previous CDs, we put out an anthology CD in 2004 that had everything we had done up to that point. 
like 18 songs. And that was, that had been distroed in Japan for many years. So we knew going there that people wanted to hear old songs. You know what I mean? But also we, we, we are on and currently are on a, a Japanese label called Waterslide. Um, that released our last album there in 2018. And so, you know, it was also being promoted as the new songs as well. So when we played live over there, it was, it was a nice mix of old and new. Well, and, you know, a few years before that, there are these series of YouTube videos by this band called beat pop. Um, And it's like a rotating list of musicians, but they're um, in Japan and they do cover sets. And I stumbled upon a pogo cover set and at that point i don't even remember what was like 2015 piece 2016 and i hadn't even i mean i had no idea that we resonated with anyone let alone mm-hmm. someone on the other side of the world so that was really cool and that's when we kind of got the feeling that maybe you know the, the song had had um a bigger impact over there than we realized yeah. And the rest of our catalog as well. But yes, Friend X was definitely the springboard. The emo so, diaries. Yeah. So when I when I when I talk to bands that have been around for a little while, I, I ask that question, would you have ever guessed in I mean YouTube wasn't even around. The internet was barely around. In your wildest dreams, could you ever imagine you'd stumble upon a Japanese cover band playing your songs? No. no. No, Never. especially not a song I wrote when I was 19. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, honestly, um, we we were unaware because the band broke up in 97. Our only album came out in 97. And then in 2004, I, I mentioned we put out that discography CD called All Along. And the reason why we did that was in 2004, you started to have like MySpace. And of course, Friendster was done, if anybody remembers Friendster. But um, MySpace was a way to really find um bands and tribute pages or people were talking and that's when we realized oh my gosh people are still talking about pogo and we started getting so we created like a pogo myspace page a retroactive one and people started messaging us like i live here i bought your cd here i bought this i found this seven inch at a punk rock record store and this and that and when are you coming to this and i mean we had been years and years broken up and Mm -hmm. so that's I mean, so that's when we first realized, wow, there's a little bit of underground staying power, you know. And so that's that's when we first did that CD of like, well, maybe people want want to still hear this music, and let's just put it all in one place at the time. You know, obviously this was before streaming and all that. You yeah. Know? What was it like in in the '90s when you were an active band? And it, again, I think I'm old enough that I can't remember when the internet really started taking off. Same. But- uh, were, were you were you hearing from fans maybe through letters like how did how yeah. did you know that you had fans someplace yeah we had a p.o box yep um, <laughs> and, and i think if you look at our the first layout of our in memory of bab lp the pogo we had a website address but it was how long was it keith oh gosh and it, it was, was like so long dot att dot geocities dot net slash <laughs> you know it was ridiculous um so and i mean the record came out in 97 and i was in college and we had computer labs that you know and i begged my parents to get a gateway computer you know so we have dial up so 
I mean, we were kind of getting into the the internet. I think Brad was probably more active in that, wouldn't you say, Keith? You sure. Brad was our original bass player. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we definitely would get letters because you know, everything we released from our very first seven inch in ninety-four up to through ninety-seven. We had we had a P.O. box. And so yeah, I mean, throughout those three years, we would, you know. Hey, complete, and that's how a lot of some of the shows on tour, like, oh, this kid wrote us, and he said he could do a show for us. So when we would book our tours, you know, using the payphone and the book your own fucking life magazine, sometimes we'd pull out those letters and go, hey, let's call this kid or let's write this person. And so yeah, I mean, there definitely was networking, just like any DIY scene. You know what I mean? Uh, definitely organic. In terms of touring, you are from and still live in florida right what what kind of touring did you do coast to coast touring no um we did three uh, during our original tenure we did three tours um uh one was just a short 10-day east coast tour uh and then in 95 we did a full five-week summer tour but even that was just uh east coast over to like chicago midwest and just kind of a big circle and then um the last big tour, same thing, five weeks. But no, we never went too far west. We never went to the other other coast. And we've talked to other bands in the last few years that were around at the same time. And we, we tell them that and they're like, wait a minute, you were gone five weeks and you never went west of the Mississippi. <laughs> and we were like, well, we were just playing it safe. You know, we'd, we'd rather take our hat full of quarters that we were paid at the DIY space and drive 90 minutes to the next show or two hours rather than 13 hours through the desert to hope somebody was there on the receiving end of our arrival. Yeah. You know what I mean? And also I think being from Florida puts us in a different position than other bands because we're in a peninsula. So it takes us five hours just to leave the state and be anywhere else anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So whereas if you're in the Midwest or something, you know, you, you, you've got this uh, radius, five hour, 10 hour radius, you could go anywhere you want. But when we went on tour, it had to be a thing. And I, I just was having this conversation today with a buddy of ours, um, Harold. He was in an old 90s band called Hank Shaw. I don't know if you ever heard of that band. I've heard the name, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were having that same discussion that we, we had this Florida mentality that we would do these one long tour a year instead of these little five and 10 day or things that bands from the Midwest and East and West Coast do because of just how our mindset was with Florida, you know? Yeah. I, I asked this. Of bands a lot too. Uh, as someone who has no music talent, period, at all, can't even sing in the shower, you know, <laughs> not embarrassing myself. What gives you the confidence, or what gave you the confidence at that, that age to to say, let's get in the let's get in the van, and let's go play in front of people? I mean, that's a big step. I, I I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and Ohio State University is here, and there's this yeah. kind of this rotation of bands every probably six years. You probably last through college, and then a couple of years later, and sure. then people are like, "Time to get a job or time to do whatever." But I'm I'm sort of struck by the fact that there's a, so many bands that I know who never played a show outside of Columbus. It was a comfort zone, and so to, yeah, to even have that that to even have that thought to like drive two hours and play a show, mm-hmm. you have to have some sort of confidence or something that that makes you drive to go. And take that that chance to play in front of people that you don't know. Uh, I don't know. So, Good. I, I mean, I think first and foremost, we were just young and dumb, and you know, wanted to do something that was fun. I think you know, Keith had been in the band previously that had toured Europe, and I think maybe 
that gave him the agency to say, oh, okay, well, we I did this over there. Let, let's make this happen over here. 100%. So, um, and Keith was also, uh, is still obviously the <laughs> oldest member of the band. Um, and he kind of took on that like leadership role and he booked all the tours. He had the dialer, you know, he would route, do all the routing and make sure we had an atlas and, and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. So he had the just, van. Yeah. Yeah. I bought a van. Yeah. I think it was just, um, I mean, yeah, you listen to the band and you go, oh, we're indie rock, but at heart we we were just punks. You know what I mean? We just, it all comes out of punk rock. And to me, it was just second nature really i mean even when pogo when we when we first started and and there was talk of playing out of state it was never like well let's sit down and really it was like yeah hell yeah fuck yeah where are we going you know what i mean how far are we going what how far can we go mm-hmm. and we never thought about money i mean we'd leave with 50 dollars and just well maybe this will get us to the next town i don't know you know what i mean sure. uh, i think there was just this desire to play and meet like-minded individuals and 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 drive into because we loved our scene so much and we were also insular and had so many great friends and bands that we loved we wanted to see that somewhere else and we knew that those scenes existed and that was just part of that whole diy networking and and some of those people that booked us and bands we played with we still talk to today yeah like i said my first introduction was from the compilation and it's obviously called the emo diaries was that a new term or had you guys been under that genre was that a genre that was tagged to your band early on or was this like the first time you had seen the association with emo uh you go Susie. well i mean we're kind of because of the of the the circles that we were touring in we were kind of grouped into that scene you know um and and let me just also state for the record that we were not a band for a very long time. Right. Um, so when I say that we played, um, you know, not being braggadocious, we it was literally one or two shows. We would play with Braid. They came down here and we played with them. We played with the Promise Ring a few times. Um, you know, we had another iteration of the band where we played with Rain Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put out the split with Braid. Um, so I think that also um, lent a lot to that yeah, label. Sure. I mean, because if you think about it, our our approach as a band, we were and are still influenced by Ida, Super Chunk, Velocity Girl, Yola Tango. Yeah. But um, our original bass player, Brad and Keith, both had, um, you know, grown up in the hardcore, post hardcore scene. So they had that DIY mindset. Sure. And yep. that's how they, they, it, they just kind of melded together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like to me, like, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I was. You know, 1994, when the band started, I was 23, 24, you know, I'd been in the scene for many years. So I, you know, to this day, I love Discord Records. So, you know, Embrace, Rites of Spring, all that dag nasty, what was originally being called emo core, you know, the term was already floating around. It it wasn't a new term by any means. And so I think to us, we just looked at it as like another subgenre under the umbrella of of the indie rock or punk rock that we were all into, you know, and like Susie said, we also loved Versus and Super Chunk and Yola Tango and Velocity Girl, but we also liked Fugazi and Minor Threat and Gorilla Biscuits. And you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so when the names started coming back around, and that's what they were referring to as second wave emo, we heard it. I remember we were somewhere on tour. It might have even been 
hanging out with the braid guys and they were like hey have you heard you know so apparently we're all emo now you know and i i never whatever it is what it is you know what i mean a joke or someone like held up a remo case i don't remember i don't know okay but i mean you know i don't know to me it's like yeah i understand it being a disparaging term now you know and people have certain connotations as the years have went on but hey the emo label has been very very kind to us so we we embrace it. We do feel at heart that we're more of just an indie rock band, you know, but we we full on, you know what I mean? Like, right. like when, when we went to Japan, our friend that booked the tour, he is strictly a promoter of emo bands. And so we were, you know, kind of told ahead of time, like, hey, when you come here, you, you're you're touring as an emo band in the emo scene. That's great. That sounds mm-hmm. awesome. You know what I mean? We had no qualms about that. No. It's a, you know, I get the I get the mixed feelings about it and you know some people refused, you know, denounced it. It's been a good term. It's been a good label for us. I mean, when you and I it sounds like we're about the same age and so mm-hmm. like while you were listening to Discord bands and all that stuff, I was listening to Sunset Strip hair metal. And that's another <laughs> I went genre. through that phase too. But I mean, that's another genre that like there was such a wide gap between motley crew and king's x mm-hmm. but they were both like considered sort of metal or hair, hair metal. metal yeah yeah um, for sure yeah and so i can see how it can be a benefit and a curse to kind yeah. of be tagged into that thing um, a benefit because you do end up on this compilation and with yeah. other bands <laughs> sure and triple triple fast action were like older uh yeah i know west pretty well the singer and, and he's a couple years older than me and i know that yeah like even they it was interesting how they ended up on on their second record came out on deep Film. And all of a sudden, like they, they, I think they sold more, more records on Deep Elm because they were on the emo comp than they did when they were on Capitol Records when they were for sure indie rock. Band. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. You know, and the, and the other thing that's interesting too is us like back in the day when we were touring and playing shows or opening for touring bands here in town, you know, we would play with the Swirlies. We opened for Verses. We play, you know, but then we also played, like Susie said, we played shows with Hot Water Music and, and, and Promise Ring and Braid. And so, to us, it was just, oh, cool show. Yeah. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We never really separate, well, this is going to be this kind of show at this mm-hmm. kind of venue. This is going to be a house show in the basement. You know, to us, it was just tour and playing awesome shows and meeting awesome people, you know? Yeah, Where yeah we Florida... play. We... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, we play, you know, a VFW with hardcore bands on the same tour we play in the Middle East. That's you right. Know, with any rock band. So mm-hmm. we were like, we'll, we'll take it all, you know, and like, for sure, put us in whatever category you want. We just want to play. So, and are, are you in, where in Florida are you today? And is it the same place you were when the band was on? Tampa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all, all four of us, including our, our current bass player, Brian, are all Tampa natives. And again, since I'm in Ohio and I don't know Florida music yeah. scene, was there, was there one club you played at? Was there, a dozen different clubs like what what was the scene like when you started was it um well a lot of by opportunities the, by the time yeah by the time pogo was going full so i'd say you know summer of 94 with our original singer we had a singer before Susie mm-hmm. joined um yeah i mean sometimes we would play five six times a month uh so we had with the, the tampa scene in the 90s was very very strong and the opportunity to play was, you know, it basically was our social media. You know what yeah. I mean? People weren't going on Facebook and what's going on? Like, hey, let's go to the Stone Lounge. That was like one of our indie venues here in town. 
and let's just see what's happening. You know, you'd hang out there three, four times a week, you know, and just catch bands and this and that. Oh, that, that band dropped off. Dude, we'll, we'll play. We'll be here in an hour, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we played a lot and we played everywhere all the time. You know, I, I always say that um, I love in the palm of my hand having uh, a DVD player, a CD player, a camcorder, a video <laughs> game system. Yeah. But but being that age and having gone through that, there was a club in Columbus. There was a couple clubs, but the club called Stashes. Okay. And Stashes always at the beginning of the month put there on a on a on a poster board their calendar for the month. And so you could see who was coming. You couldn't go online. You couldn't check yeah. out the local listings. Like you went, and it was almost as much of a treat to go there to see who was coming as it was. To sure. Show, show was happening. Yeah. And again, especially with local bands who weren't releasing music. If you wanted to see a band play their song, like if you wanted to hear those songs, you had to go see them. So it, yeah. it was it was an event. It wasn't just like another gig for a local band. It was, man, those there's three songs. There was this band called Greenhorn that I loved, and they never recorded anything. Mm. And so if I wanted to hear those songs outside of my own memory, I had to go see them. And there is something special about those days where like, yeah, and there's a simplicity to it that makes it kind of yeah. special, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Because you actually, you know, you don't have all the information at your fingertips. You have to seek it out, you know. Yeah. Um, and that makes that discovery cooler, you know. What was the strangest or most odd pairing building? Like, do you have a <laughs> did you have a friend that was like a promoter that was like giving you an opportunity to do something? Um, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna take this one. So, that, yeah. and I know exactly what I'm gonna say. <laughs> so we were on tour uh, again with our first singer Kobe, and we were on it. This is a long five week tour. And um, somehow we got connected with this band that couldn't play a show with us, but said, I know where you can play. And it was this very, very small town in Pennsylvania called Derry, uh, which is right next door to La Trobe, which is famous for rolling rock beer. And uh, so apparently this town Derry was like 1200 population and they had a theater there, the Derry Theater. And they said, look, you can go play there indie rock bands play there all kinds of stuff, but it's all local you'll be the first out-of-state band to ever play there like oh it's great and they said it's just a kid scene and just all you, we don't even know who you'll be playing with great we were just happy to play so we showed up it ended up being a ton of fun you know met some cool people however we played with this art theater band called king testicles and the oracle of fear <laughs> And, I'm correct you and yeah. wait, wasn't that my band, my tour? No. Are you sure? I'm pretty positive. <laughs> because I remember Oh, actually, that. you're right. You know, you know, she's right. <laughs> she's right. right. Susie's right. right. This was our I'm second right. time. We went back because we had such a blast the first time when we booked the second tour with Susie. We were like, we gotta go back to Derry. Yeah. And we don't care who we play with. And so we played with King Testicles and the Oracle of Fear. And I, to this day, I can't quite remember what they sounded like. But they all wore costumes. They were obviously from the local college or something. The singer was this huge man, completely dressed head to toe as uh, William Wallace from Braveheart, Mm -hmm. the Mel Gibson. And then uh, and he was the singer. And so at one point he's singing and then the music stops like he theatrically like shuts down the band and starts to give this speech. And he's pointing in the audience and we're like, what is going on? And he's basically talking about his mortal enemy has shown up. What are we going to do? And so the crowd parts. And there is a full dressed guy, someone in ninja gear with a sword. 
And then King Testicles pulls out a harmonica out of his like sheath or whatever you call your wrist guard there. And he jumps off stage and proceeds to have a harmonica battle with this ninja with the sword. <laughs> of course, King Testicles won the battle. And then the show continued. It was amazing. I have a photo of myself and Matt with King we'll Testicles. We'll I'll email it to you or something when this is all done. It was, it was LARPing before anyone yes. knew what LARPing was. Yes. You know? So to me, that's hands down like the strangest. I mean, we've obviously been put with weird bands and ah, we should have cover bands and metal bands. That to me was just so out there. Who's but the, the man thing- that we played with at the roller skating rink? Roller skating. The punk band. Oh, Submachine from Pennsylvania. Yeah, you, are you familiar with that band? No. So early 90s, they're from Pittsburgh, crust, gutter, uh, mohawk punk, you know, like, whoa, what are we doing playing with this band? Dude, they couldn't have been any nicer. They dedicated a song to us. I mean, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That was definitely a very strange billing and one that we kind of walked into timidly, like, is this going to be okay? Well, there is. Yeah, but yeah, the the theater one was just it was just so bizarre. But the full circle of it is, is it wasn't awkward. We had such a great time and they were so fun and bizarre. I know that was a long answer to a very short question. (laughs) No, that's a great story. (laughs) I haven't heard you say anything about being in it to make the money. But that question being asked, what was the best paying gig or what was the thing that brought in the most money that you're like? we can make money at this? Like, is this, is this a mistake or what's going on here? Did Back in the happen? day? I don't even have an answer. A hundred dollars, maybe? Maybe. something we got. I mean, you know? uh, yeah, I remember we played a show somewhere in Pennsylvania, super DIY, and the kid hands us like 80 bucks and we were like, whoa, this is awesome. And then, and then 30 minutes goes by and he's like, well, I don't know how, but I got an extra 70 bucks in my pocket. You, you know, nobody else wants it. You can take it. And we were like, 150 bucks. This is crazy. So, I mean, at the time, to get to even reach $100 was just unfathomable. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, so we were never, no, we never played any like high offering festivals or we never had a guarantee ever, even locally. Um, we were always just like, yes, we'll play that. <laughs> Yeah. We'll oh, and you. by the way, I, I wanna um I wanna say on the fifty dollars in your pocket, speak for yourself because I had a budget of five dollars a day. Yeah. So five dollars <laughs> a day times five days times five weeks. I mean, yeah. that's way more than fifty dollars. That's so right. That's right. I just needed to clarify that. It's one hundred and twenty five dollars <laughs> for the record. So just about our spending money. But yeah, I mean, no, we never it was never about the money. We just wanted to make enough money to get to the next town. Mm-hmm. you know that's it gas you know we'd scrounge food if somebody offered us food oh t- yes please make us dinner that would be amazing or go to the grocery store and get like a box of pasta and a box i mean a jar of sauce and yeah three bucks feed yeah. the band for three dollars or whatever mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and so since since like the band reunited and reignited it um you've done some touring right for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, def- you definitely are doing things different than you did in those days, right? Yeah, I you're mean, getting so, guarantees now. Uh, n- n- no, no, uh, and that's that might even just because we've never asked for them. You know, I mean, we we were always self booking. We've never had never had, and still don't have a booking agent. Um, 
As a matter of fact, the, the new album that's coming out in a couple of weeks is the first time we've worked with another label other than ourselves in 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's a new experience for us as well. And it's been very wonderful. Um, yeah, no, we don't. <laughs> we've just been fortunate with the tours and stuff that, um, you know, when we reunited uh, and we on our first comeback album, Secret Club, came out in 2018. And we did a 10-day self-booked tour up to New York and back. Had a blast. And then um, that's when we just, I don't know, the, the, the dice of fate. You know, we, we got four shows with Mineral that were all Southeast dates. And we were like, whoa, this is crazy. And then we were asked to do a, a 10-day tour with Jawbreaker. We were the pinch They had to reschedule. We were pinch hitters. Yeah. Um, because pinch hitters, originally, yeah. Yeah, it was supposed to be. Jay Robbins and Warren Women and Jawbreaker, but they had to cancel because of the hurricanes in the fall of 2018. Right. So um, I jokingly said, "Oh, just ask us if if no one can do it," and yep. they asked us. So yeah, they asked us um, to play. I didn't actually think that they would seriously ask us. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'll just joke around and say it." And then, <laughs> so that was cool. And then um, the thing with Japan actually was putting motion in the fall of 2018 um, when the promoter that we mentioned um, was actually over here from Japan to go to Fest, which is a a big punk festival in Gainesville. Um, And he saw us play and he said, you're going to come to Japan. And we were in Japan about six months later or eight months later. So it was just a really cool um, coincidences and events. It's falling into place, you know. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want to ask about the new record in just a minute, but I mm-hmm, sure. so you put out everything on your label for the most part. Yeah, I mean, in, back in the day, in the in the when we were active, um, our very first seven inch was our very first release for our label, New Granada, that that we continue to run to this day. And then we had a couple other seven inches that and the album that eventually came out in memory of Bab. Those came out on Orlando, Florida. Um, DIY label called Outback Records. Okay. And um, uh, so we were kind of on a label then, you know, uh, but then as far as the compilation and then anything else that we had kind of released digitally or EPs, that, that was all through through us. So the last time prior to now uh, was 1997 when the album came out on Outback Records. So what is that? 25, 25 years, mm. you know? So where did that money come from to, because I'm guessing you had to, I'm guessing it was more expensive to press stuff in the night. No, no way cheaper. Really? Yeah. Price of vinyl manufacturing is gone up even in the last year. See, I own and run a record store as well. So I'm very, I'm in this world. Yeah. yeah. It's so incredibly expensive to do a record now. Vinyl is a dead oh, format yeah. in the 90s. No, you're right. So yeah. nobody cared about vinyl. So that's yep. why it was easy for punk bands to put out seven inches because yep. it was cheap and the, the records will come back quick yeah um and you, oh, you could do cheap yeah you, know. you could do 307 inches for 300 bucks oh wow. sleeve included and sell them for three bucks and whoa we tripled our profit you know what i mean mm-hmm. it was so and you make cheap a, when he says sleeve included we made those at kinko's you know yeah. what i mean like oh yeah just diy i mean it was yeah. so cheap vinyl was so i mean i don't know if you ever go back and see or find me i see you got a ton of flyers and posters behind you there oh, but like a, sometimes a, when you 15 dollars oh. street because, <laughs> because i did it because i the, 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 
the wall background is like really old wallpaper. Oh, it looks like, great. Well, because the zoom is a little grainy, so yeah, it looks like yeah, it yeah. looks legit. Yeah. So uh, um, you should have just gone with it, man. You should have been like, <laughs> yeah, man, I got these, uh, you know, whatever. Um, anyway, um, uh, I lost my train of thought on that one. So, so uh, you know, no, um, cheap, cheap printing and Kinkos. And- Kinkos, yeah, cheap printing. Um, oh, dude, I don't know. I lost it. We got, so, we got into your tapestry there. <laughs> no so going back to, like you said, your website, I did the same thing. I wrote for a print magazine, uh, mm-hmm. like a newsprint kind of magazine that was Midwest um, distributed. And okay. And that was what I was asking about the cost because I know like we had to print 10,000 or whatever, like there was a sort of a minimum order and um, the magazine survived on advertising. I mean, it was free. We dropped, like we loaded cars, we drove, I didn't, I I drove the Ohio route, but um, the guy that ran the magazine would drive to Detroit, Indianapolis, Chicago, and just Mm -hmm. drop them off in every club. Eventually the labels got behind on their bills stop paying him and so he couldn't turn around and turn that money back into a magazine so he ended up owing the printer some money left town pulled the job and that was like right i ended up um i didn't want to put the work into printing and paying up front for all that stuff yeah and i heard about this internet thing and my wife and i (laughs) bought bought front page and created my my first website and our our url was uh, i don't even remember I remember to, to promote it, I made a T-shirt, and it was like all the way across. It was members.tripod.com backslash Ohio backslash yes. backslash. <laughs> it was That's so awesome. Long. And I also didn't know about the internet because I kept asking my wife if we turn our computer off at night, can people still look at the website? And I didn't understand that it was being stored somewhere, so I thought <laughs> That's awesome. you could only be the yeah. website when my computer was on and we were on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So come a long way since then, but for sure. If you want to talk about where the money came from, when the label first started, um, it was a co-op. It was really just more of a, an opportunity for local bands to have an imprint associated, yeah. you know, you know, kind of like, oh, they're, they use, they're on New Granada too. Like I was in a band in high school. Um, we were what, NG3? Three. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had nothing to do with Pogo. Um, we were just, and we paid for everything. Um, and then as we started the, and then, I don't know, take over here from, from here to talk about the label progression and, and how we fund everything. Keith. Well, no, I just, yeah. I mean, basically it was just, it was, it was a, co- a co-op for the first few releases. Anybody mm-hmm. could use the name, but then by like the third release, Susie's been, nobody else was using it anymore. So we just kind of took it, you know what I mean? Cause I mean, we were part of the co-op and no one else. So we just, you know, um, we started putting out things and then. Fast forward to about the early 2000s, um, aside from my full-time job, I was a, a local promoter in town and I was doing five, six, seven shows a month. And so what I did for many, many years, almost a decade, I never took one penny from my promoter cut. I always put whatever I made back into the label. And so we would, every few months, we'd go, oh, we have enough to put out a, a CD. And so we'd contact a cool local band or friends of ours. Hey, can we put your CD out? And then we would just start all over. And then that just, you know, because by, I want to say by like 2005, New Granada had only put out like 10 things, even after existing for 10 years, because we started in 94. But since 2005 to now, I think we're going on like 88, 90, as far as the title. You know what I mean? So that's relatively small, but for us, yeah, just literally, I mean, it's literally Keith. Like people yeah, can yeah. say, "Oh, Susie, I don't do any." Keith does it all. The only 
I get final say on bands. Yeah. Um, and I get veto power on yeah. bands. So it's kind of like A and R, but he literally does everything on his own. Yeah. So the band breaks up in '97 with the right. full length done and ready to come out. Uh, did you keep doing music, and it was just the band was done, or did you kind of decide that put music aside for a while, or uh, maybe put music aside forever, but then get pulled back into it? Well, as Susie previously stated, I I left the band. I was having some issues. So I needed some time to just kind of chill out and just kind of get my life in order. And it was only a year and a half later, maybe, um, that Susie sent um, or gave me because there was no sending of anything. There was no, you know, a cassette of some um, bathroom demos she had done on the acoustic. And I was just like, these are awesome, you know. So Susie and I and our friend Chris and Matt, who was the guitarist in Pogo, uh, just started kind of practicing again. And we formed a new band called the Maccabees. And we put out a couple EPs. And that lasted a few years. We did one short tour. And um, uh, so, yeah, we yes, the, the, the answer is, yeah, we continue to be creative. and But it wasn't this full-time thing by any means. Yeah. Well, and you know? I'll back it up a little bit. We actually... Um, got back together to finish writing two songs remember we wrote tell me truly and all along Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah, we Um, pogo got back together about six months later after the break because we realized with the album coming out with the label that we we needed to add two songs so we had written two songs that just never got recorded uh so we we quickly got together put them in the studio but it wasn't like we're getting back together it's like we need to record these songs for the record and i remember um even like the three of us trying, let's get the band back together, Keith. And he's like, no, no, I'm not ready. Yeah. Um, so, and then we, then we took a break and I sent him those demos. Um, and the Maccabees was basically Pogo, but with a different bass player. Yeah. Um, so, For sure. Yeah. And you were doing, you said promoting. Yeah. That was uh, later on in the 2000s, for sure. I was doing local promotion shows and stuff like that. And then um, Susie and I had another band that lasted about five or six years before Pogo got back together called Rec Center. And uh, Susie, you know, as you, you may be aware or listeners, has multiple sclerosis and that has ups, up and down flares. And so she had a couple of years where she was having a hard time playing guitar. So she started um, trying the piano or keyboard. And so when we formed Whirl, uh, Rec Center, she, we got her a, Whirl, a Whirly, a Whirlitzer, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, we never toured with that band. We put out a 7-inch and we put out a, a CD at the time. It's on Spotify and all that. And um, that was just a fun band because I think at that point we were thinking, oh, we're older. This is what we do now. Get together once a week and play music with our friends. And then we'll play the occasional local show. And mm. that's just that's just where we're at. The, the elder statesmen of life yeah. and the music scene. Um, and then. And then Pogo, we decided to get Pogo back together and it just went nuts. <laughs> when you got back together, was there like a was there an event? Was there like a reunion show? Was there something that kind of that caused the the, the reunion, the reformation, the rebirth of the band? For sure. Um, yeah, a, a few times over the years, because I mentioned earlier, we run our own label, New Granada. And the very, very first Pogo 7-inch, NG001, came out Christmas night, 1994. 
and we played a show that night. And to this day, I continue to put on a show at Christmas night. It's just something to do. It's super fun. Um, and so every few, oh, 10th anniversary, 15th anniversary, you know? So one year, uh, we got back together with Susie and played a show on Christmas night. That was awesome. One year we got back together with our original singer, Kobe, and only played the old songs. That was fun. And then around, well, 2014, I guess, which would make it 20 years, the 20th anniversary Mm -hmm. of the label. We were like, man, wouldn't it be fun if we played a show where Susie and Kobe, our original, were to, we did it all together. Mm-hmm. And so we rehearsed over several months. And so what we did was kind of a split set where Susie played guitar and sang and we did the, her pogo songs. And then Kobe came out and instead of sw- switching places, um, Susie played second guitar and sang backups. And so it was all five of us. It was fun. It was, it was so, I mean, it was, I'm kind of getting goosebumps a little bit talking about it, to be honest with you. And that was when we were like, man, why did we stop doing this, man? Let's just, this is, why are we doing this every five years, man? Let's Mm -hmm. just do this, you know? And so pretty much um, what kind of led to the band getting back together full time was, like I said, we, we, with the songs we did with Kobe, we had, a handful of songs that we had written back in the day that never got recorded ever. And we were just like, man, these were such great songs. So we actually recorded an EP with, with Kobe singing and Susie doing backup vocals um, of new recordings of very, very old songs. And that came out, I'm going to say 2015, we did a limited 10 inch and that was very well received. And that was our first quote unquote new music in 20 years, even though it was old songs. And that really cemented of like, man, we should do this. And Kobe was like, you guys do it. You're the better band. Susie's wonderful. You have my blessing. Go be Pogo. And just, I'll be a fan. And that's what we did. And I have to imagine, like I was talking about that band before that, never recorded anything mm-hmm. there had to have been people that have been following you that when that ep came out they were like i remember hearing these songs yeah 10 15 years ago and now mm-hmm. i get to actually own them they're finally that's right recorded when you were playing shows like the reunion shows were people coming like people maybe that had moved away like was it a was it an event where people you noticed that there were people who were like yeah i used to live in florida now i live in new york and i came back to the show did you get any of that kind of stuff well, I mean, the the actual Christmas night show of it all, um, there are already people in town who aren't normally in town because they're visiting family. Um, so, I don't know. Would you agree, Keith? That yeah, it's it's a scene. It's a scene Christmas reunion. Night. I mean, it's yeah. a it's a it's a '90s music scene reunion. You know, and as the years have gone on, it's it's kind of become its own new tradition for younger people. You know. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. I mean, when we would play and sometimes people would, we sometimes we'd get contact that, hey, who's playing Christmas night? There any reunions? Because there wasn't always a big reunion on Christmas night. You know, sometimes it would just be cool local bands or whatever. Uh, but no, anytime we would do something special or an anniversary night or uh, some other band that hadn't played in a long time, you know, um, you know, that was, you know, the first time we reunited with Susie uh, on Christmas night, uh, it was four bands and it was all four were nineties Tampa scene bands that hadn't played. And we decided to turn it into a fundraiser uh, for the Mul- national multiple sclerosis society, MS society. 
And this club, I mean, it could, legally it was couldn't hold 150, 200 people. And I, I, I can remember, man, we cut the door at 400 people. I mean, we had to shut the door. We're turning people away. I think we donated like 15 grand to the MS Society. So that was Pogo's first time back together with Susie. And that was also with other 90s. So it was this huge event. People were just losing their mind. We had something not not that different than that. Um, there was a Facebook group called the Rock and Roll High School, and it was all old <laughs> Columbus scenesters and talking about their favorite band. And they did very similar. Four bands from the 90s got together. And I think it was around Thanksgiving or Christmas when people were sure. in town. And, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, we're probably close to the same age. And there's just something really cool about being able to see that band that one mm-hmm. last Even if it is that one last time, it's seen that band yeah. one last time is just something something special about that for sure man for sure yeah so the new record comes out uh i'm trying to think we usually cut the the intros of these on sunday nights when they record the regular Mm -hmm. episodes so today's tuesday so we'll probably cut it sunday and then they'll release it next about eight days nine days from now oh cool the record comes out in november or is it coming november 4th friday november 4th awesome Mm -hmm. yeah and how long how long has that been in the works uh, well, we recorded the album September of 21. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we had originally scheduled a few time in September 2020. And why didn't you do it then? Uh, COVID. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, yeah, that's a whole other story. But um, so um, John from Spartan Records, our label, he had exp- he and I are Facebook friends and gotten friendly on Facebook. And he had expressed interest to me even before we recorded. Hey, I want to put your new record out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that, that ball was rolling really fast. You know, really fast. I, I would say by, I mean, we recorded in January, or September. Jay mixed in October. It was mastered in November. And by January, it was done. And we were announcing that we were on Spartan Records and the record was coming out in November. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was fast. It was really fast. Because it's coming out in November and it was done in January. Is that a big deal to you? Do you feel like you've just been sitting on it waiting for it to come out? Or is it kind of like, yeah, it just comes out when it comes out? And uh, What is time? You know what I mean? The pandemic. Yeah, honestly, man, the pandemic just messed with my mind as far as time goes. You know, it's like we lost two, three years of our lives. So what's eight months? What's nine months? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you recorded with Jay Roberts. Mm Mm-hmm. And is that um, is that the first time you've recorded with him? Yeah, so, we recorded also with him back in 2017. Okay. Um, when we made our first record after we got back together, um, and we had so much fun, it was just a no brainer that mm-hmm. we wanted yeah. to go do it again. You know, and we actually gave ourselves a couple couple extra days, um, you know, so we had more time to work on stuff. Yeah, and, and you knew him from back in the day. Well, we were fans of him. Yeah. He didn't know us, okay. you know what I mean? He might have heard the name, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, no, we were massive, massive Jawbox fans and Burning Airlines and everything oh, he's yeah. done. You know what I mean? And honestly, like, I know that there's people that go to record with Jay because of that. Like, oh my gosh, this is the guy from Jawbox. We are fans, but we're also fans of the albums he had done. And and here's a here's a here's a... Um, an emo moment for you. A lot of the records that we reference, you know, uh, uh, Orange Rhyming Dictionary, Just Brazil, Promise Ring, 
those are what we now call emo records. Yeah. Texas is the reason. So we were familiar. Uh, Braid, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Braid, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we were familiar with his work. Particularly, I was a fan of his drum sound, which is a thing. The J. Robbins drum sound is just uh, sent from the gods. And uh, it just so happens that when we looked at the lineage of stuff that he had worked with, amongst many others, it was like, ah, oh, this is kind of, we're cut from this. This is our ilk. You know, mm-hmm. so it just made so much sense. And then the bonus mm-hmm. was, yes, we we were and are fans yeah, of his yeah. music and, and his band. But that was that was just icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah. it was really cool. I'm pretty sure um, he's been I'm pretty sure he's been a guest on the Dig Me Out podcast. I, I oh, sure. Him, but I'm sure the, the Tim and Jay did. But mm. we had some not similar story for me, but there's a Columbus band who, just like you guys, were fans of the work he had done. They were fans of the bands he had been in, and they went and recorded with him. And um, they're often fond of calling people sweethearts, and they're like, "He is a sweetheart." Like <laughs> they, they just love the guy. He yeah, yeah. He's he's super cool. He's so patient, which I mean, I guess yeah. you have to be a sound engineer, but um, and he's he's very good at at being neutral when he needs to be and inserting an opinion. You know, yeah. Me. Yeah. yeah, he's and wonderful. One, I recommend any band if you can get up to Baltimore, do it. He's amazing. Yeah. Well, and because we had had that experience with him in 2017, um, we sent him demos, and he actually got on the phone with us and and went through the songs and made some suggestions on the arrangement. So, I mean, I don't know if it's officially you could call it pre-production, but you know, we actually talked about it ahead of time, so we had some ideas with him going into the studio and um we just went in there open-minded with you know just let's just see what happens you know i mean we had we knew kind of what we wanted it to sound like but i mean there's cello on there there's organ there's um pedal steel i mean there's um a lot of things that we haven't actually ever a lot of guest vocals and stuff like Mm -hmm. that yeah yeah Yeah. it's okay you said you have a you you own a record store i do yes yeah, Microgroove in Tampa, Florida. And how long have you had that? Uh, December will be 11 years. Ah. Yeah. And I've, and I, it, go ahead. It, is it just records or did you have CDs? No, well, it's really small. It's about the size of a two-car garage. It's about 600 square feet. Huh? We're, we're about 80% vinyl. Uh, and of that 80% vinyl, it's primarily used in secondhand with huh? some new and reissues in there. And then I do sell like used tapes and CDs, but it's pri- it's primarily vinyl. So eleven years is it probably on the cusp of the vinyl resurgence. Like, was it just something you loved? And yeah, I've that? worked in and out of record stores for for thirty five years. I mean, my very first job ever was a mall record store in, in the eighties. You know, and I worked there for six years. Yeah. So I mean, I've you know even before opening my own shop, I worked almost four years at another local shop, and then that place closed, and you know, um, you know, the vinyl resurgence. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a loose term. You know, that that generally refers to like new vinyl, you know, yeah, and yeah. being a used record store. Not much has changed. I mean, you definitely get little bumps and we have seen a little bit, you know what I mean? But there's not this, uh, you know, Susie is a wonderful uh, spouse and the breadwinner. So she allows me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I contribute to the grocery fund and the gas, put gas in the car. So do you, uh, uh, do you I bring home the bacon. Yeah. Do you ever do you ever get anything in the store that you set aside for yourself? 
Not really. I quickly turned that off when I opened the place. And I was like, look, man, if I just start taking stuff home, you know, and of course, we've all been in that position where we've been in a record store and you're like, hey, man, do you have this? I got one at home and it's not for sale. That that curmudgeon record store guy. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very occasionally I do bring home something cool or special. It's usually really esoteric. Um, Yeah. Like what was that Mrs. Miller thing? Yeah, Mrs. Miller. I I like funny records. I like joke records. I like things that have a funny album. You know what I mean? Things that are probably worth five or 10 bucks. A a record of Vincent Price reading spells. Right. Stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. uh, In Columbus, we have probably six records or vinyl stores. Mm -hmm. And we've had two or three that have opened and closed in the last five or 10 years. And one of the stores had a, I don't know if it was a free box or it was like 10 for a dollar, but I grabbed a um, Denny. Denny McLean, Detroit Tigers pitcher, mm-hmm. who does a he has like a pipe organ record, <laughs> and the cover the cover is like a baseball card. I mean he's I mean it it, it it's like a picture from a baseball card. It's I'll have to look that up. Pitching, and um it's all like it's all an organ. Amazing. Now is weirdest. it like is it like baseball like like a uh, baseball park music? I don't think so. I mean it's, okay, but but it sounds like it just because right. of the way that he plays it. Um, I think that's probably the weirdest record I own. Yeah, that's cool. But. Uh, yeah, I've got some, uh, I don't know if I have anything super rare, but I definitely have brought home some strange things. I brought home, a few years ago, I brought home um, a gold 10-inch, which was strange when I tell you about the age of this thing, of Pope Pius Twelfth from the 40s. He was the Pope during World War II. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a 10-inch recording of his like sermon or homily or whatever you want to call it. And I just thought, that is weird. You know, and I brought that home and I showed to Susie. I said, isn't this the strangest thing you've ever seen? You know, so. so Not nearly as cool as an Oregon baseball. Uh, I don't know. You know? <laughs> so a, cu- a couple of questions to wrap it up. Uh, yeah. If you could summarize the 90s from the band perspective, like what would be the, on the 90s Pogo Tombstone, what would. Oh, man. Susie? Well, I think you would start off by saying Pogo all agree that the 90s was the best decade for indie rock music. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I don't know as far as like uh, I don't want to say a eulogy, but you know, like uh, what's the word? A headstone. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was such a wonderful, wonderful time to be in a band and make music and it was exciting to make music and it was exciting to play shows and it was exciting to tour and meet people. And, you know, and of course I'll say it, it's exciting when people like your band, you know what I mean? Uh, it, you know, cause it, it's one thing, you know, people say, oh, I'm just making music for myself. Well then stay in your garage. You know what I mean? Don't, yeah. don't get on stage and waste everybody else's time. If you don't really, you know what I mean? Everybody, you know, you're writing music as an art and you want your art appreciated, you know, and I don't think that's an ego thing at all. I think that's logic. That's reason. You know what I mean? So the 90s was just a really just a a wonderful creative period for so many bands, especially in the DIY indie network. You know, it just was a great, great time to be a band. So, like I said, these guys have been doing this. They've been doing it. I think 11 years they've done over 600 wow. episodes. They release a new episode every Tuesday. Wow. So I don't know all 600 albums they've released. 
but what album would you suggest that has been overlooked and underappreciated from the 90s that they should throw into the review bin if they haven't heard? Uh, oh, anything by Versus. Secret Swingers, Secret two, swingers. Cents, two Cents Plus Tax. Um, versus, if we, I, we've probably said their name two or three times this podcast. We are such massive, massive fans of that band and such an influence on us. You might not hear it in Pogo, but we, in our minds, we hear it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the reason why I think that they're a good choice as far as Forgotten is because as of today, that now, you can't stream Secret Swingers or Two Cents Plus Texas to anywhere. They're, they're not, they're not streaming only, anywhere. You can only, um, the full record is on YouTube. YouTube. Somebody put yeah. it on YouTube. So they truly are missing right now. You know what I mean? And the cool thing is, is they're, they're back together. They just put out a killer album about two years ago and it's amazing. So I think Susie and I can agree either one of those albums, probably secret swingers by a, by a hair, just a perfect, perfect nineties indie rock record. Yeah. I don't I don't think they've done that one, but that is exactly I think what they're looking for is those things that, that you can't stream everywhere that is hard yeah, to find. You can't, other than YouTube or unless you have it, you have the CD or the vinyl or tape or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And they I don't think the vinyl or the C D or I mean nothing's in well they re-released some stuff, but I don't think they re-released No, you can't get it. You can't get it anywhere. Um, I mean I can do this without asking you, but I'll have you do it. Um plug any any websites, anything Bandcamp the best place to hear your music or order your music through Bandcamp or through a website or how, how best can people uh well if they're wanting of- if they're wanting the new record, if they're wanting a tangible, you know, they can order it from Spartan Records, SpartanRecords.com out of Seattle. Um if you have listeners overseas, um the uh label Big Scary Monsters is distributing a UK exclusive for Spartan. Uh in Germany, there's a label called 30 something records. That is distributing a uh, exclusive red vinyl. Um, in Japan, you can get our CD on Waterslide Records. And as far as just hearing us, um, yeah, Bandcamp, any of it really, pogoflorida.com, P O H G O H F L.com goes to our Bandcamp. Yeah. And you can stream everything there. Um, but we're on Spotify, we're on all the streaming platforms and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But if people want to keep it DIY and and uh, they can go to they can go to Bandcamp. It is certainly all there. Our whole catalog, all the way to the very beginning with Kobe, up to the new album. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat. And, yeah, uh, this is great. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeoust and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Let's go. Let's go.